0: So as you guys are turning to Revelation chapter 20, verse 1 through 10, we're going to be talking about the millennial reign of, of Christ and how we work those things out. And as we come to that, as we consider those things, I also uh, just want to give you a brief update on uh, on Pine. We just came down from there this morning to to come back for, for church tonight. And uh, everything looks good, so... Uh, Water's even down a little bit. River's not so bad. Don't be afraid. Unless you want to be. But um, hopefully, I think, uh, if you get a chance, you ought to look at that full lamb in the back that uh, Jason's getting all prepped for the, I think it's Saturday, I don't know when. Barbecue. Yeah. Water is freezing. So if you get there, I don't know if this happens to you guys. Sometimes when we're camping, and you're setting up, I get grumpy. Does that ever happen to you guys? No. So I get, I start, sneaking wire. I start getting grumpy. And so the cure I discovered was to go stand in snow melt. Because that takes all the fire clean out of you. And you'll be happy again. Alright, let's look. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain, Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the church and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Let's pray. Father God, we lift this section of Scripture to you, Lord, and we pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us, God, that you would guide us and lead us into your truth. Lord, we want to honor you and glorify you, God. We ask that we would allow the Bible to, uh, to dictate, God, the, the things as we want to understand them, that we would lay hold <coughs> to your truth. Father, bless this time, God, and, uh, and indeed open our eyes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're looking at what people call the millennial reign. I don't know if you've heard about it or how much you've heard about it. This is the only section of scripture in the entire Bible that talks about the millennial reign. Millennial is just a Latin word for a thousand years. So it's the thousand year, a thousand year period of time. The only place specifically that it's talked about is here, Revelation chapter 20. If you're interested, I'm going to talk about some of the, the multitude of views. In regard to the millennial reign. If you're interested and you want to understand a little bit more about it and about some of the other views that are out there, there is a, uh, a video on YouTube called An Evening of Eschatology. It is about two and a half hours long, so make sure you got time. And there are, are three of the uh, experts in their particular view, whether it be premillennial, postmillennial, or all-millennial, those are the main views, so those are the ones they focus on, and they spend two and a half hours talking about each of them sharing the strength and the weakness of their own view, so it's interesting just to kind of be able to get to see how they all come to, to where they come to, because we're all coming from, we're all going to go to Revelation 20, that's where it happens. And so you, you have springing out of that three different views. Now, I'm just going to give you a basic description of them. I, I'm not an expert in amillennialism. I understand postmillennialism a lot better and premillennialism as well. But, uh, um, if you want to get more information, what I'm going to give you, that's a great source to say, look, I want to hear, I want to hear where these, what these views are talking about and where, and where they're coming from. It's a great way to do it. And the nice thing about it, an evening of eschatology, they're all friends, and so it's not a lot of fighting. It's just talking and laughing across the table. So it's actually pretty cool. Uh John Piper is the uh what are they, moderator or whatever over the over the evening. So I encourage you if you're interested, check it out. If you're not, that's okay too. So we're looking at a thousand year, the thousand year reign. What's that all about? You know, we have to ask ourselves a lot of questions coming to this. Why do we believe there's a thousand year reign? Why do we believe that Jesus is going to sit on a throne? Where does all that come from? Where do we? Where where have we brought that? Now, you know, for me, at least at one part of my life, it's because that's what the pastor always told me, so that must be how it is. That's a lousy way to know what you know about the Bible. <clears throat> what you need to know about the Bible needs to be what you know, what you've read, what you've looked at, what you've studied, and what you understand. So, it's a great way... And a great reason to kind of dive in. So let's talk about those three views briefly and then we'll kind of get into the text. <clears throat> so we've learned this about just in, in our time sharing about, uh, about Greek. If you put the word "a" in front of another word, it is like the anti or the not, no millennial reign. So amillennialism means no millennial reign. Okay, an amillennialist... Believes that the millennium is not literal. It's not meant to be taken literal. That the thousand years is a description of an indefinite period of time. It's symbolic for the entire period in which the gospel is preached. And the control of Satan's power during the course of church history. Between the first and second comings of Jesus. In essence, this is an oversimplification. But in essence... The millennial reign of Christ is in heaven. He's king in heaven. When we get to heaven, we're part of the the kingdom of Christ together with him. That's an all millennialist. Still saved, not a cult. It's not something weird. It's just a different view. That there's not a literal millennial reign. That we're still all, all three groups are still looking for the second coming of Christ. The return of Christ. All-millennial and post-millennial don't believe in a rapture. That the church will be raptured. That those things are they they don't uh, recognize scripturally, and what they're looking for is the return of Christ and to Earth, just like everybody else. That Christ will one day return to Earth, but we are presently in a millennial reign. Only the millennial reign's not here on Earth; it's in heaven. Okay, everybody tracking a little bit. <clears throat> the second view, post millennial which is actually having a lot of resurgence these days, post-millennialism believes uh, it's a literal period of time that precedes the second coming of Christ, but not necessarily a thousand years. Oftentimes, and there's reason for that, guys, oftentimes a thousand can be used to describe an indefinite period of time. Okay? An indefinite period of time. What do you mean? Well, to the Lord... A day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. What is that? That's describing an indeterminate period of time. Saying God's outside of time. Alright? So it's not like it's never used that way. So it's not a literal thousand years. What it is, is the time period in essence from the time Jesus went to heaven and declared to his disciples, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, so go and make disciples. And then, so the church is moving forward to establish the kingdom, to see the nations put in subjection to Christ. And it takes however long it takes. The church is either uh, successful or less successful. None of that matters. A lot of times you hear people build a straw man, and they say, well, the church, the world's going to get perfect until Christ comes. And then we all say, but the world's not getting perfect, so what a dumb view. Okay, that's not what it's talking about. It's just saying that the church is to go forward and establish in whatever way she can the kingdom of Christ on earth and they're to do that job until Christ returns. Neither one of those views believe in a rapture. So both of those views, they, when they look, I should probably touch on that just briefly, but when they look at the rapture, they bring the rapture together, and they harmonize it with the second coming of Christ. Um, I don't want to be too confusing, but I also don't want to leave you with a half-cooked meal. So I'm going to try to explain that a little bit. When we come to a gospel account, let's say we read a story in Matthew and we read a story in Mark, and they're a little bit different, what do we do with them? Well, we harmonize. We don't say they're two different things, right? We harmonize. What's that mean? It means we're saying this is a view from Matthew, this is a view from Mark, this one is more in-depth, right? This one's less in-depth, it's just the just the facts, and this is giving us a little more information, okay? Are you guys with me? So we harmonize that view. Everyone does that, that's what everyone does. What an millennialist and a post-millennialist does is harmonize rapture scripture with second coming. So they're actually, in their mind, being more consistent with Scripture by not dividing those two Scriptures. Are you guys tracking with me? So I just want you to understand where the, kind of where that view comes from and why, why it is that they would abandon a, a view of the rapture. But they all everybody's coming to Revelation 20 for our view of the kingdom. Okay, premillennial <coughs> is believing in a literal and the precise thousand years. Doesn't believe it's figurative. It will literally be a thousand years. The thousand year reign will come immediately at the end of the tribulation period at the battle of Armageddon. Christ comes and sets up on his throne, establishes his kingdom. All the nations will bring tribute to him. Oftentimes when we come to, to scriptures talking about the kingdom, you see this idea that Christ is king, and the nations are bringing tribute, and we all wonder, why are we doing that in heaven? Because it's not talking about heaven. It's talking about the kingdom. This is the kingdom. Christ is ruling and reigning. The nations come to him. He rules with a rod of iron. These are all scriptures we'll talk about. Hopefully tonight we'll get a chance to take a look at. So we have a literal thousand-year reign, Christ on the earth, Satan's loosed, uh, and the final battle occurs, and we slide right into the great white throne judgment. Premillennialists look at the book of Revelation as more of a chronology. I happen to be a premillennialist, so I see the book of Revelation as more of a chronology, moving from point A to a conclusion at the end, and this is kind of the journey through it. Um, and post mill and on mill would see it a little bit more figurative. Post mill and on mill would see the six seals as telling the exact same story as the six trumpets as the six vials, just from different points of view, all culminating in the same effect, Christ returns. So we we all agree on that beginning and the end. You guys tracking with me okay? So I just want you to have an idea. But most of the time when people have taught me the different views of, of the millennial reign, they did they were um, unfaithful to the other views, and I thought, how, how could somebody be so dumb to believe those things? And then you find out, oh, that's why. Well, That doesn't sound so dumb after all. Maybe... Maybe it's something that, that you want to pursue or understand. So those are the, the three views as we come here to this chapter that we can see. So what do we see in verse one? Chapter 20 of verse one, we see the binding of Satan, right? It says, I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. Now what's being described? What's being described is God sending an angel to, to wrap up Satan and to, Stop him from deceiving the nations. All throughout scripture we see, have seen, even all throughout Revelation, right? Over and over and over. The dragon deceiving the nations. But I don't want us to get the wrong idea. Sometimes we think it's the devil that makes us uh, um, do the things we do. And that's not true. See, in, in the book of John, if you read the gospel of John, what you're going to discover in the gospel of John is that the word became flesh. And came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Right? He brought light. The scripture says he brought light to the people, but they didn't want the light. Why? Because they loved what? They loved the darkness. They didn't say the devil made him do it. it. Said they, you, you and me, we, our natures, our sin nature, has a desire for the darkness. Okay. Now the devil doesn't help. Right? When he's there tempting and dangling the things that that uh, can cause people to topple and fall. But all he's doing is using the desire that's already where? In my heart. What did God say? He said it's not what uh, goes into a man that defiles him, right? It's what comes out, which implies it's already where? It's already in me. I didn't get it because I ate something wrong, or I watched something wrong, or I read something wrong. It was already inside of me. So we want to understand that, and I think that's a point from the premillennial view of the millennial reign of Christ. That's kind of the point because a lot of times we say, "Well, why would God do this? Why, why is there a millennial reign?" A couple of reasons: God made a promise to the nation of Israel and to David specifically that a king would always sit on his throne; that the king that sat on David's throne, that came from his lineage, would, once he sat on the throne, he'd be king forever. Now, either that doesn't happen, and maybe because Israel sinned, God just said, you're out. But I think that when God made that promise, that's really going to happen. And the king who's going to sit on the throne and last forever is who? Jesus Christ, right? He's going to sit on the throne and reign forever and ever. So we have this coming king that that, that the nation, I think, is anticipating. <clears throat> but Satan's going to be bound. We come to the end of the tribulation period. The battle of Armageddon is over. The, we read last time, remember the bodies are everywhere. Now it's cleanup time. The kingdom is being established. The judgment of the nations is occurring. And there's going to be a thousand years perfect peace with a, the curse lifted from the earth. So how do I recognize the curse today? Well, if I'm frolicking out in the woods somewhere and a hungry lion comes, he may eat me. But in the kingdom age, lions don't eat meat. Lions eat straw. The effects of the curse are lifted. And the, the, the harsh reality of our, of our universe is going to find itself all under the reign of Christ. Peace on earth. Remember we heard that phrase at the birth of Christ? Peace on earth, good will toward men. So, the promise of this peace. How is that all going to occur? Well, simple. When Jesus starts his reign, the devil goes into a pit. It doesn't require a special angel here. What does it require? Simply God saying, "Go and do it," because the Lord gave unto Jesus Christ. He said, "All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth." If Jesus says, "Angel, grab Satan and put him in the pits," there's nothing Satan can do. That's it. That's that's the nuke. Okay, nobody can circumvent. The power of Christ. So this angel is going to throw him in. Look what it says in verse 2. He seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. Until what? Until the thousand years is up. Now you always ask, why let him out? Just leave him in a dumb pit. Well, there's something that God is showing us. What is it that he's showing us? That evil, the nature of evil, is not out there somewhere. The nature of evil is in us. It doesn't take Satan very long to get an army to come against the Christ. He's only loosed for a brief, a little while, is what it says, a little while, season, short period of time. In a short period of time, all he's doing is saying, hey, let's throw this guy out, why, why should we have to follow him? And people who grew up for a thousand years in a perfect society will still rebel. Why? Because it's not what's out there. It's what? It's in here. It's what's in here. And, and salvation then is the same as salvation now. When we, we give uh, faithful uh, loyalty to, to, to God, we give faithful love. That We love the Lord our God with what? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. What says in Deuteronomy? In Hosea, God says, I want your loyal love. I want want you to love me. What did Jesus say? All the law and the prophets are fulfilled in what? Love the Lord your God. That's the greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And all the law and the prophets are fulfilled in this. It's, It's a big deal, right? That's the hinge. That's the hinge. So, This is what's happening. So we see the the dragon is cast. He's cast down into this pit. (coughs) It's In case we miss it, he's the dragon. We talked about that in Revelation 12, 3, right? Remember the sign? The red dragon trying to devour the child. Is everybody with me? That dragon, that's the devil. That's the power. The devil has been the power behind the beast, has been the power behind the false prophet. When we talk about the beast, remember, we're talking about a system... That has a unifying leader in front of it. But when the Bible is talking about the beast, it's talking about the whole thing. You guys tracking with me? The same way with the false prophet. The false prophet is a false religious system. There's a leader, but it's a whole system that's being judged. The Bible uses the same phrase to describe both of those. What is the word? You guys remember? It's a city. It's not Jerusalem. It's Babylon. 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 Fallen, Babylon is fallen. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. So we see when we look at Satan's activity in the tribulation period that's going to be put to an end, that political system is done. He's thrown into the pit. There's no power for that system. In Revelation 13, 1 and 2, we read about the fact that the beast received his power from whom? From the dragon, right? Now the dragon's in the pit, no power for the beast. So it's, it's, it's an end to all of those things. So there's, it's an end to the political situation. It's an end to the deceiving of the nations. A lot of times we have people talking. There's a lot of books out there that people like to read <coughs> that are very entertaining, perhaps about the tribulation period. But let me tell you what the Bible says. The Bible says, um, in essence, how do I want to say this? There's If someone has heard the gospel and rejected the gospel, there's not a second chance. Well, Jackie, what do you mean? Well, 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, we'll just read from 9 to 12, it says this, The coming of the lawless one is with the activity of Satan, with all power, false signs and wonders, and all wicked deception for those who are perishing. So there's a lot of deception going on, right? Why are they perishing? Look at the next phrase. It says, because. You see the word because? Because what? They refuse what? To love the truth. So because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved, therefore God sends them strong delusion, so they will believe what is false. Because they had not a love for the truth, they will believe the lie. If they don't have a love for the truth, they will believe the lie. Every person, as as I believe, during the tribulation period, as they're presented with the opportunity for the gospel, if they reject that opportunity, if they reject the invitation to 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 the marriage feast, if they reject it, then they will believe the lie. If you believe the lie, what are you going to take? You're going to take the mark of the beast, right? You're going to put that mark on. You're going to be signified or marked as his. I'm worshiping the opposite of God. I am committing that most heinous sin in the scripture, which is idolatry. To love something else. Some, something else as other than. So as the devil is cast into this pit, the deception of the nation is going to end. Deception, there will be no deception. So there's no more blinded eyes. The, the, the babies who are born during the thousand year reign of Christ are are going to be born with the uh, same opportunity as everyone has to hear the gospel see the king it'll be, we won 't even be able to relate because we didn 't grow up then right We came up prior to the tribulation period this is the a, a, like a, the next age after the tribulation period, but it, the scripture lets us know what 's going to happen how 's it going to go how are things going to come together we 're going to see the end of the accusations of the brethren, the devil Satan means accuser. He's the accuser of the brethren. The Bible says he accuses the brethren day and night. He stands in heaven, tells God what a bunch of losers uh, his people are. And one day, I don't believe it's happened, but other people do believe it's happened already. But one day, God's going to throw Satan out. And he's going to come to the earth angry and mad because he knows he has but a short time. Until he's going to be wrapped up in a chain and thrown in a pit. So the accusation of the brethren will come to an end. So what's the result for Satan then? The result for Satan is he's going to be in prison for a thousand years. What's that going to look like here? Okay, let me give you two two big things and, and, and maybe one little one. Two big things. Number one, the first thing it's going to mean, no more war. Zero. The Bible talks about this time. Isaiah chapter two, verses two to four says this: "It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains." Now you remember what I told you about mountains. What did mountains? What did mountains speak of? Kingdoms. The kingdom of God will be the highest kingdom when the, when the stone hit the statue's feet in the book of Daniel. What did it do? It grew in the what? A mountain. What's that? It's a kingdom. And what did it fill? The whole earth. The kingdom of God filling the whole earth. That's the point of the vision. What do we see in Isaiah 2? The mountain of the house of the Lord is the highest of all the mountains. The kingdom of God. It shall be lifted up above the hills. All the nations will flow to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. To the house of the God of Jacob. So that He may teach us His ways. So who is sitting on the throne? God's sitting on the throne, right? It's, it's using personal terms. He will teach us His ways that we may walk in His path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and decide disputes for many peoples. And they will, listen, beat their swords into the plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they study war anymore. No more war. Unnecessary. Because the king of kings reigns. There will also be no injustice. No injustice. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 3 through 5. It says that his delight... "...shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see." In other words, he's not going to judge with partiality how we look. "...nor decide disputes by what his ears hear." He's not going to make decisions based on what other people tell him about people. "...but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will kill the wicked." righteousness will be the belt of his waist, faithfulness the belt of his loins. In other words, no more injustice. No more is a poor man going to get taken advantage of by the rich. That's the picture that he's trying to paint. No more is someone going to make a bunch of rumors about you and everybody's going to believe it and you you can't get done the things you want to get done because of the lies people believe. That won't fly. Why? Because the judge of all the earth is perfect. We don't have one of those right now. But we will. And there will be no injustice. Isaiah 42, 1-4 through 4 says this, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud, or lift up his voice, or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, a fainting Burning wick, he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged until he has established justice in the earth. Means that he's gentle and he's righteous, and decisions will all be correct. They will all be right. They will all be good, and the coastlands will wait for his law. So we see no war. We see there's going to be perfect justice in the land. And if you got time, spend some time reading Isaiah chapter 11 because it talks about the fact that God's going to heal the enmity between beasts. The wolf won't eat the lamb anymore. The lion's going to eat straw. A child will play by the cobra's den. That there's not going to be the fear of the animal kingdom because that enmity is going to be put down. Why? Because the king of kings is on the throne. So I just want you to get the idea. Perfect utopia. Everything right. Everything flowing and Satan bound for a thousand years. Now, Scripture also tells us, as we look there in uh, in verse 3, it says, after that he must be released... For a little while. So we know that there's going to be a time when Satan is released. And the reason, and again the point for that, is that sin is a human condition. The devil didn't make it. It's not something that the devil puts in you. The point is, it's in you. Sometimes there's the argument made, if I grew up in a different place. If I lived in a different neighborhood. If I had different experiences in my life. Things would have been different. Maybe, but the evil that's in your heart would have been in your heart no matter what environment you grew up in. And prayerfully you can recognize that, repent of it, and receive a new heart. Isn't that what God declares? In Ezekiel, what's he say? I'll give you a new heart. What does he call it in the New Testament? He'll make us a new what? A new creation. Totally new, right? Created for what? Good works or bad works? Good works, right? That God has planned for us to walk in them. So, so look, God will do the work in us, right? We just need to respond to the invitation. We need to respond to what He is giving. Well, let's look at what the believers are going to experience. Look at verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So we're seeing the picture of the first resurrection. The first resurrection is the resurrection unto life. The second resurrection is the resurrection unto death. Daniel talked. He said, everyone's going to be part of one or the other resurrection, either The righteous to the resurrection of life, or the unrighteous to the resurrection of death. Or as the Bible describes it, the second death, separation from God. So this we're seeing is that first resurrection. So who are these that are responsible for judgment? Who are these? Well, the Bible said in Revelation chapter 4, verse 4, we saw the picture of the 24 elders. What did they sit on? 24 thrones. What does that indicate? Some level of judgment, right? There's some responsibility, some type of judgment that's taking place. Multiple places in the New Testament that talk about this in relationship to the church. In in fact, Paul at one point says, do you not know that you will judge angels? But you can't solve these problems between each other in church. You shouldn't go to law one against the other. You should be able to solve this because you're going to be able to judge angels so there'll be a judgment of angels at some point. In Matthew 19:28, Jesus saying to the 12 disciples, "Truly I say to you in the new world where the son of man will sit on the glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones judging what's it say? Tribes of Israel." So there's these scriptures that talk in the New Testament about those to whom judgment is being committed. God has given all judgment to the son and there is some judgment that the son has given to his church. And there's some judgment that the son is going to do. But this is what's being done. The thrones are brought out and the nations are judged. When Moses was judging the whole nation by himself, Jethro came to him and said, Look, Moses, what you're doing is not good. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that God is not capable. God is absolutely capable of not needing us. But what's the picture we see in Scripture? The leader who appointed for him, what? Multiple judges for the time of Moses. It was the 70, which comes later on to be known as the Sanhedrin. And they come alongside Moses and help him judge. They deal with the little things. Moses deals with the big things. You guys tracking with me? So there's this picture of judgment here taking place that I think the church... And obviously the martyrs, right? We see the martyrs who had died for him are going to be given. We see the resurrection. Jesus spoke about this in John 11 to Mary and Martha when their brother died. You remember? They came to him and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. You remember Jesus' response? In John 11:25? Jesus said to her, I am what? The resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. God doesn't lose anybody. We might say, we lost someone, but God doesn't say that. God knows. They're mine. Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and one day to receive a glorious body. A glorious body that God has for those who have loved Him. Everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I got you. That's what Jesus is saying. Revelation 20, verse 5 goes on. The rest of the dead did not come to life until after the thousand years were ended. So this is the first resurrection. First resurrection, resurrection of life. Second resurrection, we're going to see it in the following chapter. Uh, well, we'll see it next week. As the, the dead come back to life at the great white throne judgment to be cast into the lake of fire. The final judgment of God. Over mankind's rebellions. That's the second. That's the second. The other type resurrection. First resurrection. Resurrection of believers. I have a question for you. When did the first resurrection begin? Yeah. Began on a Sunday morning. A bunch of ladies were headed off to a tomb. To see their savior. And what happened? The stone cracked. And is blown out of the way. And what was being shouted. Uh, the dead in Christ aren't dead. I'm alive. The resurrection begins then. It culminates in the, in the resurrection of the body of the believers at the end of the tribulation period. Culminates there that final resurrection. That resurrection to glory. Uh, <clears throat> um, Daniel 12.2 uh, talks about this resurrection. We've talked about it. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth. Shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to everlasting contempt, right? Shame and everlasting contempt. Judgment, everlasting life, or uh, separation from God. In John 5, 28 and 29, it says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Whose voice? Jesus, right? Yeah, come out. Lazarus, come forth. What happened? Yeah, he comes out. And they will come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. This one is the resurrection of life. Every believer at this point will receive a glorified body. One that doesn't wear out. Between this event and our death, we are with the Lord in spirit. Absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. With the Lord in spirit. Our spirit is with him. Well, I don't know what that looks like. You guys get there first. You let me know. Otherwise, yeah, write me a letter. Uh, we'll figure it out when we get there. But there will be a day when we receive a glorified body. And that glorified body we see here in the first resurrection. Now it says in verse 6 Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. If you're part of the first resurrection, you don't have to worry about the next one. The resurrection unto death. You are part of the resurrection unto life. You will not be resurrected unto life, only to somewhere in the future, fail and end up in the resurrection unto death. You get what he's saying here. If you're in the first one, God keeps you. Right? You were never able to keep yourself anyway. God's been keeping you all along. His hand... Is upon you. So it says blessed is he who shares in the first resurrection. Over such a second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ. And they shall reign with him for a thousand years. So what's the role? Priests of God. What's the role of a priest? What does a priest do? A priest represents God to the people. Represents God to the people. So that will be the responsibility of all believers in some way, shape, or form, various levels of responsibility, right? When we saw the parables of Christ, didn't he say, for those of you who were faithful with the talents you were given, you were going to be given what? Much, right? And one of them says you'll be given ten cities. Another one says you'll be given five cities. I don't know how that's going to work out or how it's going to look, but I know that God's plan is going to run like a finely old machine, and everyone will have a job to do. A position to fulfill. With a glorified body, and a glorified mind, and a glorified spirit. And the battle with sin done. I kind of look forward to that. No worn out knees, no bum ankle. Just good, right? No aches and pains when you wake up in the morning. Bike starts on the first kick. <laughs> Man, it's going to be, it's going to be glorious. <clears throat> they will reign with him for a thousand years. So we will do something. We'll be reigning alongside of Christ. Everybody see where the scripture says that? We'll be reigning with him. We'll be fulfilling that role. We have been rescued from the second death. Now what's the second death? According to verse 14 of chapter 20, we'll talk about it next week, it says, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death. The lake of fire. So you don't have to wonder what the second death is. The second death is the lake of fire, which is described as uh, absence from the presence of God, which is probably an oversimplification since God literally is everywhere. So, but the con- we kind of make the concept, right, that we're not with him. We're not in his, with his presence. We are somewhere other. <clears throat> They'll have a special relationship as priests of God, Ruling and reigning for a thousand years. Now look at verse 7. Now when the thousand years are over, so there's an end, when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Now I don't know if you guys have done much or many studies about Gog and Magog. I'm going to bother you right now. Gog and Magog is not Russia. It, it, there's no way for you to be able to make that leap. Well, you believe whatever you want to. I'm just telling you that's not the way that the the Bible teaches it, and the and the uh, um, the the Second Temple documents at the same time the way they describe Gog and Magog. I've I've shared the concept with you a, a few times in terms of other things. Gog and Magog is the boogeyman, and Gog and Magog is the evil to the north. Gog and Magog is the place where bad things come from. It could be any nation. Are you guys tracking with me? It's just an example of nations in opposition to God. When we look at Ezekiel 38 and 39, you're going to see the same phrases in there. In Ezekiel, if you're part of the Tuesday morning study, it'll be like six months because we're in chapter 16 right now. But when we get to 38 and 39... That's what we're going to talk about. It's the it is synonymous. It's a synonymous term with evil out there. What are we seeing here? This is not Russia. Russia's gone. Is there a Russia after the tribulation period? Oh, Russia's been tanked. Who's Gog and Magog? Gog and Magog are all those in rebellion against God the last time there's ever a rebellion. Gog and Magog. You'll see that writing. there When we went to Israel, we went to the to the what's the place? What's the place of the book? What's it called? I always mess it up. You remember Jonathan? Dog on it. The it's a building with a jar, and it has the Book of Isaiah in it. That's what it's called doesn't matter. But in there, what was it? Oh, so in that building, there is what they call Peshitta, which is uh, 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 different uh, translations of other writings around that same period. And they have the story of the sons of the light and the sons of the darkness. It's not in the Bible. It's just something that they were writing at the same time frame as when they find the scroll of Isaiah. Okay, you guys with me? And what do they call the sons of the light and the sons of the darkness? Gog and Magog. So if that's the way they use those terms then, when they write it at that time again, it's not a stretch to think that's what they mean when they're talking about it. Like a figure of speech that we use today, that figure of speech might change, you know, 2,000 years from now. But if they want to understand that figure of speech, where do they go? Come back to where we were, and they'll be able to understand it. Does that make sense to everyone? So, anyways, the idea, Gog and Magog, the final rebellion, the last rebellion against God, they come from the four corners of the earth. So there's a lot of people who are going to come against in the rebellion, To gather them for battle. Their number like the sand of the sea. So you've had perfect peace. Perfect justice. Perfect environment for a thousand years. And given a short season of Satan saying let's rebel against Christ. More people than you can count are going to rebel. Because the problem is not outside of man. The problem is inside of man. If we deal with the problem inside of us and not blame everything outside of us as though it was something else, we take responsibility, we look to Christ and we ask Him to save us, the Bible says He'll save you, right? It's not overly complicated. We we create that overcomplification... Is that a word? Complification? I don't, think, I don't think that's a good word. But anyway, you get the idea. So... They're going to, nations will be deceived, Satan's released, nations are deceived. Gog and Magog, the bad guys, are going to come against the Lord in rebellion. Verse 9, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So there's no battle here. You guys get that, right? So the people, so ultimately what you're seeing is the people during the millennial reign making a choice. I'm either with Christ or against him. The ones who are against Christ are going to march on the throne of God in Jerusalem. They're going to come, surround the city, and then what's going to happen is they're thinking they're going to war, and there's going to be a... And the skies are going to roll up like a scroll, and they're going to find themselves standing in a long line in front of a great white throne. And the final judgment has begun. Because everyone in every dispensation throughout time will make a choice of what to do with Christ. With him or against him. That's what Jesus said, right? There's only, there's only two ways to go. You're either with me or you're against me. It says, the, de- the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire. <clears throat> and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they are tormented for how long? Night and day, forever and ever. So that's a long time, right? So hopefully we can at least agree on the reality that hell is a bad place. Uh, I don't think I understand it all. I don't know that I I, I get how it all works. I just know that I don't want to go. Right? I don't wanna. I don't want to spend my life in rebellion against God. Now I have met people who look right in my eyes and say I would rather be in hell than be with with God. So. Those kind of people are out there. Right? That's all right. Everybody gets to do it. Right? Everybody gets to make a choice. What did Jesus say? You run into somebody like that, shake the dust off your feet and keep going. There's more people who need to hear. Right? And maybe you get a rock in a shoe and somewhere down the line that guy repents. But otherwise, we keep going with the gospel. Right? Share the gospel to everyone who will hear. The devil who deceived them. They were tormented. Day and night, forever and ever. In Matthew 25, we see the judgment of the nations. In the judgment of the nations, this is what Jesus says to the nations. The division of the sheep and the goats. You guys remember the story? He will say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire. Who was it prepared for? The devil and his angels. That's what it was made for was made to, to hold and keep captive those who were fallen from of the divine, the, the angels. But man gets to make his choice, right? Where will you go? Where do you want to spend eternity? You're going to bow the knee to somebody. You get to pick who you're going to bow the knee to. If we bow the knee to Christ, man, that's life eternal. First resurrection... Lots of good things. Lots of good things. And if we have bowed the knee to Christ, then what does that mean? Our call then, moving forward, no matter what millennial view we have, is still to see to the best of our ability the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, right? Isn't that how Jesus taught him to pray? Pray thus. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is, the same way it's done in heaven, right? So there's this concept that the church moving forward, trying, doing what she can to establish the, the gospel, the reign of the gospel, until we see our Savior face to face. And Revelation chapter 20 gives us like a bird's eye view. You just did a thousand years in ten verses, and you even feel like you hardly went anywhere, right? But you get a chance to see that ideal Laid out God's final complete judgment against rebellion. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.